0: The Peter Schiff Show. Well, this morning we got the first look at the second quarter GDP. And if you remember, the first quarter uh, had been reported most recently at a minus 0.2. And everybody was looking for an upward revision due to the new double seasonal adjustments that were supposedly going to show that the economy was stronger in the first quarter. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. The government did revise the first quarter GDP back into the black, but only up 0.6. And, you know, I remember when they first started talking about these double seasonal adjustments, it was supposed to be a much bigger number than that. But no one really seems to care. They're just focusing on the fact that the economy no longer contracted. But here is the big story. They were looking for the second quarter number to come in at 2.9. Instead, it came in at just 2.3, significantly below the 2.9 that had been expected. In fact, if you remember, in the beginning of the year, I was saying that I thought at best the GDP for the second quarter would be in the low twos. And that's, in fact, what we have. Although you never know, by the time they get finished with their revisions, we could end up being uh, below two uh, for the second quarter. So once again, uh, Wall Street and the Fed were much too optimistic on where they thought the second quarter growth was going to be. But it's more than just that, because not only did they revise the first quarter, they revised many many years of gdp information data they revised up several first quarters including that really bad first quarter we got in 2014 and they revised that to a better number but they also ended up revising down a lot of uh, third and fourth quarters and so the net effect of all these adjustments in the seasonal adjustments actually shaved almost one full percentage point off of u.s gdp growth for the past three years wall street didn't care From 2011 to 2014, before these new adjustments, the government claimed that the average growth rate of the GDP was 2.3% per year. Now, following these adjustments, the average growth rate is just 2% per year. That's a significant change. That's 0.3 percentage points per year. That's about 13 or 14% less growth than had been previously reported for three years in a row. That's a big number. I'm surprised that Wall Street just shrugged that off. But also, let's look at the first half of this year. Because I remember when we initially got that minus number for the first quarter, people thought that we would have a big bounce back in the second quarter. Well, we didn't. Yes, the second quarter was better than the first quarter, but not a lot better, 2.3. If you average... The first half, the GDP growth rate was just 1.45%. That's it. I think this is the worst first half of the year that we've had, maybe, uh, of the entire so-called recovery. And my guess now is that with a second quarter GDP, which, again, at best will probably be in the low twos, at best, at best, if it's even that, But that would mean we'll probably end up with GDP growth for the entire year of maybe one and a half. And that would probably make it, again, the slowest annual GDP growth of the entire recovery. Now, I mean, theoretically, the Federal Reserve was waiting for the economy to be strong enough that it no longer needed its emergency 0% rate. It's been waiting for the economy to achieve escape velocity. Well, it's waited until the economy was moving at the slowest velocity of the entire recovery. I mean, if we didn't have escape velocity when the GDP was growing faster than it is now, if the economy was too weak to raise rates from zero in 2014 or 2013 or 2012, given that the economy is much weaker now, why is it now able to sustain? higher interest rates i mean they used to say well you know we're going to take their training wheels off at some point well we need those wheels more than ever before because think about this if the economy is barely limping along with all the support the fed can muster at zero percent interest rates how are they going to take away that crutch now when the economy needs that crutch more than ever before i can see if the gdp were growing at five or six percent the fed could say you know what The growth is now so strong, we could take away these emergency measures. we're at escape velocity, and maybe the economy will slow down a bit without 0% interest rates. But even if it slows down, you know, we're just stopping it from overheating. But if they lean against this recovery now, if they say, hey, the economy is growing too fast, we need to slam on the brakes now, we need to raise interest rates, and it's already slowing down, it's like they're going to they're gonna push it down even faster. So none of it makes any sense, right? If it's about the economy, the economy, again, is at its weakest point of the entire recovery. And if they didn't raise interest rates when the economy was stronger, then what is the point of raising them now? Some people might say, well, inflation, but of course, by the way the Fed measures it, there is no inflation. Of course, I, I've never believed those numbers, but the Fed pretends to believe them. And, and given the numbers that the Fed claims to believe, inflation is no greater threat today than it was at any point in the last four or five years. So why would they be raising rates? Now, the Fed actually came out again and made a statement yesterday on rates and nobody really thought they were going to raise them. Of course, they didn't. They left them at zero. But again, supposedly, they left the door open to a rate hike in September. Although I don't, I don't even think there's a crack in that door, basically. I don't think that they're going to raise rates. Many people are still thinking, oh, maybe they'll wait till December. Because again, in the Fed's official statement, they said that they are data dependent and they're still waiting to see improvements in the labor market. Now, what improvements are they waiting for? Clearly, they're not waiting for the unemployment rate to move lower because that's at the lowest it's been, uh, you know, certainly of the entire Obama presidency. But the rate is very, very low based on historic measures. The unemployment claims that came out, I think not this week's, but last week's, were the lowest in like 48 years. So what is the Fed talking about when they're saying we still want to see more improvement in the labor market beyond the improvement that they've already seen? And I mentioned this before. The only improvements that they can possibly be referring to are wage growth, which has been completely absent and has no signs of returning, or it could be an increase in the labor force participation rate. And again, we're at an all-time low right now, the lowest since 67. The labor force participation rate is still declining, not even a sign of improvement. And the only other thing they can be looking for is part-time workers getting full-time jobs. And again, that trend is nowhere turning. It's at the low point. So if the Fed is going to wait for a improvement in wages— if they're going to wait for an increase in the labor force, if they're going to wait for more people with part-time jobs landing full-time jobs, they're going to be waiting indefinitely before they can raise interest rates, which again brings me to the point that this whole thing is a show, a charade. The Fed wants to pretend that the economy is strong enough to withstand higher rates without actually raising rates and proving that it's not. Because again, the economy is barely surviving with zero percent interest rates and i don't think it will i think they're going to need another round of quantitative easing qe4 they're just going to hold off as long as possible before actually admitting it and they're still trying to come up with some kind of excuse as to why this unexpected emergency fourth round of qe is necessary but of course it's going to do the trick and you know by the way this recovery was already the weakest recovery in the the modern era, you know, since the Second World War, the weakest recovery ever, before they just revised it down. Now it's extra weak. But we've also had the most Keynesian monetary stimulus ever. More stimulus than ever before. So according to the Keynesians, if we had a massive amount of stimulus, we should have had a stronger recovery. If we had the most stimulus, this should be the biggest recovery ever. But it's the weakest. Yet the Keynesians don't want to question the, the reality that maybe their stimulus is an economic sedative. The only answer they can come up with was, well, even though this is the biggest monetary stimulus ever, it's still not big enough. We needed an even bigger Keynesian stimulus for it to have, have worked. Now, we've got some more economic news that came out during the week. Some of the reports that nobody really seems to talk about, I've been following this Red Book year-over-year same-store sales number, which rose by just 1% year over year, this July to last July. And this is the slowest annual increase in years. I don't even have the data. I'm not sure how far you go back, but I was looking at the last you know, three or four years, and this is by far the lowest. In fact, if you look at the same period last year, the year over year growth was about 3%. The same thing in 2013, July, year over year, same store sales growth, 3%. This year, it's, it's two-thirds lower. It's only 1%. And this does not adjust for inflation. This is just the actual amount spent, not how much merchandise was purchased. uh, But if prices went up, then that's part of that 1% increase. And that is a very, very weak number. And I'm not making this up, but I was reading some articles and they were blaming it on the hot weather. I joked about this during the winter that, you know, when things were bad in the summer, they would blame it on the hot weather. And that's exactly what they're doing. Now, I don't even think this was a particularly hot July. I think it was pretty cool. Actually, but I mean, it, I mean, it's hot every summer. But again, so according to the media or according to the analysts, you know, if it's too cold, you don't shop. If it's too hot, you don't shop. You know, it's got to be just right. You know, just like uh, Goldilocks. You know, you can't shop unless the weather is just right, right? It can't be too hot. It can't be too cold. It has to be perfect for the Americans to shop. This is a kind of nonsense that they expect us to believe. The economy is weak. People aren't shopping because they're broke. They they've shopped too much in the past. They don't have any savings. They're loaded up with credit card debt. They got student loans. They got auto loans. Maybe they have a mortgage. A lot of them don't. A lot of them now are renting, but their rent's going up. And so they're spending all their money on rent. They don't have any money left over to go to a store and buy something. In fact, we got news this week, I think it was yesterday, from the Census Department that the U.S. home ownership rate just fell to a new low of 30, 63.4%. That's a new low for this cycle. This is the lowest the home ownership rate has been since 1967. I was only four years old. Many people listening to this podcast were not alive the last time the home ownership rate was 63.4%. You know, this shows you how everything the government does backfires, right? Again, I talked about this in the last podcast. They're trying to get more Americans to own homes and the result is the fewest percentage own homes since 1967. Maybe if the government didn't try so hard to promote home ownership, maybe more people would actually own homes because they would be a lot more affordable. At the same time, the average or medium monthly rent just hit a new all-time record high. So all those people who can no longer afford to buy a home, thanks to the government, are paying through the nose to rent one. And maybe that helps explain why consumer confidence in July unexpectedly plunged from 99.8 in June to 90.9 in July. That is the lowest level since September of 2014. So if things are so great, why is consumer confidence Plunging, uh, the forecast was for 99.6. And instead, it went all the way down again to 90.9. And again, I still think consumers are overconfident. The problem is they're not pessimistic enough. They still believe all the hype. They've been brainwashed by the media, and there's a lot of false hope out there. And ultimately, a lot of that false hope is going to have to be dashed. And when it is, I expect to see a much bigger decline in the consumer confidence numbers. Meantime, as the evidence continues to pour in that the U.S. economy is much weaker than everybody had believed, the dollar seems to be immune. The dollar isn't selling off. Uh, Still, euro is around 109. The dollar up today uh, against the euro. is up a little bit yesterday as well. Dollar also up pretty much across the board against commodity currencies. Gold continues to have a lot of problems. Gold down again today, seven or eight bucks not getting a rally from what should be the type of news. In fact, I'm reading more and more articles about why gold is finished. I mean, I got one of them, somebody emailed me earlier today, uh, an article forecasting gold to go to $350 an ounce, which is a huge collapse from where it is now. And those type of outlandish forecasts, I mean, that is a kind of a crazy forecast. I mean, 350. I mean, given the fact that the only time gold was even that cheap was in the uh, 1990s, you know, after at the end of that 20-year bear market. But it was very, very inexpensive at that time. It was historically inexpensive. But given the fact that it cost most gold mines, you know, $1,200, I don't know any gold mines, any gold mines that can come close to producing gold profitably at $350 an ounce. But believe it or not, in the 1990s, they could. Gold companies were making money in the 1990s when gold was under $300 an ounce. I know I owned them. They were paying dividends. It was possible to profitably mine gold for under $300 an ounce. At this point, it's not even close. And, you know, all the people that want to talk about, hey, there's no inflation, well, wait a minute. If there's no inflation, how is it possible that they can mine gold profitably back then at 300 but now they can't even do it at 1200 Now, yeah, you could say, well, you know, some of the, the better quality grades had already been mined. But if that is the case, again, if all of the inexpensive gold has already been mined, and if the only gold left to mine cost a fortune to get out of the ground, then why is that gold going to be valued at $350 an ounce? Right. Only if there's no more demand. But why would gold demand disappear? I mean, there's been gold demand for thousands of years. All of a sudden, you know, women aren't going to want jewelry made out of gold, even though there's more women on the planet now than ever before. And theoretically, we're more affluent than we've ever been. I mean, if you look at countries like China, India, you know, a middle class that exists now that didn't even exist in points of the past that they're all not going to want gold. That doesn't make any sense. Forgetting about all the other uses for gold, and there are plenty of uses. I've gone over that before. I mean, it's not just jewelry. It's not just because gold looks nice and and you can you know shape it into, in, into interesting things. That's not. There, there are so many uses for gold. As if all these uses are going to go away. These kinds of forecasts again, it's like you know Dow thirty six thousand when some you know somebody wrote that book. I actually think that was Harry Dent's book. But, you know, when the Dow's at 10,000, now people are saying, oh, it's going to go to 30,000. You get kind of crazy forecasts like that. Well, that's a crazy amount of pessimism, you know, to have all these dire gloom and doom, right, type forecasts when it comes to just how low the price of gold is going to go when there's no indication that the price of gold is going to fall to that extent. And there's no reason why it should. And as soon as this momentum shifts. And, you know, let all the shorts pile on. I mentioned last podcast for the first time ever, hedge funds are short gold. Fine. Let them be short. I mean, think of all the things in the world that you could short. Think of all these overpriced, hyped-up stocks that these hedge funds could be shorting, right? Companies with billion-dollar market caps and no earnings and no prospects for ever having earnings, right? You have all kinds of things of dubious value that you could actually be short. But instead, these geniuses want to short gold. That's, that, that's what they want to short. They've done all their research. They tried to figure out, hey, what's the most overvalued thing that we can short? And all they can find is gold? gold? I mean, that's like the last thing you'd want to be short is gold. And I think they're going to find this out the hard way when the price of gold goes way up. But again, the more people that short gold now, the more people are going to have to buy it back later. And I got news for all the people who are shorting gold now. It's going to be a lot easier to sell something that you don't have than to buy it back. Because when they have to buy it back, the gold's not going to be there. Because the smart money is buying gold and putting it away. And if gold goes up $50, $100, $200 an ounce, the people that are buying their gold now below $1,100 are not going to be there to sell it at $1,200 or $1,300 because that's not why they're buying it. It's not the traders who are buying gold. The traders are shorting gold. It's the strong, long-term holders that are doing all the buying. Attention listeners, I have an urgent message for you. We're in the middle of a war. The global conflict is destroying the lives of millions without a single bomb being dropped. It's called the International Currency War, and your bank account has been drafted to fight. The victims in this conflict are our currencies, the dollar, the euro, the yen, the pound. They're all heading to zero as irresponsible central banks compete to see who can print the most the fastest. But there's one form of money politicians and central banks can't destroy, gold.